1 Samuel chapter 15. What a good message that song has. My goodness. I love it. It's good stuff. 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you came Sunday morning and Sunday night, thank you for coming back, honestly. Thank you for coming back tonight. I've been looking forward most, um, from the preacher standpoint, um, been looking forward most to preaching this message out of all three um, Perhaps the, the simplest of all truths, the, the least complex, um, but the one that, that is just the funnest to preach as, as a preacher. Let me remind you what uh, J.C. Ryle said. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy, but not just. A God who is all love, but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody, but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own, and he is not the God of the Bible. Profound. Absolutely true. And uh, as I've said all throughout this chapter, I love to preach on the love and the mercy of our God, and I certainly love to preach about a real place called heaven. I love it. It's great. It brings energy to me, and it's easy to hear and listen to. Um, but we have an obligation to preserve holiness and to promote holiness and to give you a picture, a full picture of God, both sides of God. And so that's what 1 Samuel 15 does so well. Let's read just a few verses at the end of chapter 15, beginning in verse number Thirty-four. I'm going to put these verses on the screen for you. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can follow along there. Just three verses. Chapter 15, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Would you look at that first sentence of verse 16, of, I mean of chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn? That's going to be the, really the foundation of the message. If I had to title the third part of defeating sin, it would be in the form of that question. How long are you going to mourn? I think God can help us tonight. Let me just pray one more time. Father, help us now. I want clarity of thought and, and freedom of speech, and I, I just pray that this would help some folk. Give us energy. In your most precious name I pray, amen. The word mourning is an interesting word. It's a word used in the Bible to describe the deepest type of grief. In the Hebrew, it literally means to bewail. When you see this word used throughout Scripture, it's almost exclusively used to describe the grief someone is experiencing because of the death or loss of someone they love. 
For instance, in Genesis chapter number 37, when Jacob heard from his sons that Joseph had, quote, been killed by an animal, he wasn't, but they lied about it. He believed it, and when he believed it, the Bible says that he mourned the loss of Joseph, thinking that his son died. In 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 1, when David got word that his son Absalom had been killed in battle, the Bible says he mourned. The same word used in Genesis 37 and the same word used in uh, 1 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel 19 is, is the exact same word used here in 1 Samuel 15 speaking of Samuel's mourning. When someone would mourn in the Bible days, they would go through some various customs of grief, such as renting their clothes, dressing themselves in sackcloth, shaving their head, and then pouring ashes and dust over their head, and fasting, going without food for many days. Scholars say that mourning back then could last anywhere from seven days to 70 days. And I say all that to get you to understand the severity of what Samuel was feeling. Because the verse didn't say, and Samuel was disappointed. And it didn't say, and Samuel was discouraged. And it didn't say, and Samuel was sad. It said he was mourning, a word that spoke of grief over death. And over the loss of something. Perhaps he even rent his clothes. He dressed in sackcloth. Maybe he shaved his head and poured ashes on his head and certainly would have fasted for days. We don't know how long his mourning was, but at least seven days, I would imagine, maybe longer. And you might be thinking, wait a second, Saul wasn't dead yet. So why was Samuel grieving to such a degree? There was no funeral. Well, verse 35 makes it clear that Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. To Samuel, Saul might as well have died because this would be the last time he would ever see him until he was put into the ground. What is obvious here in Samuel's mourning is that he loved Saul. He cared about Saul. He was close to Saul. And I'll tell you why. Because Samuel had been with Saul from the very beginning. Samuel was a huge part of Saul's being a king and developing as a man and as a leader. You could go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel was there when there was great potential and great promise when Saul first came on the scene. It started when, 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 when the children of Israel got discontent with God as their king. And they looked around at all the other nations. And they said, we want an earthly king like all the other nations. And it was Samuel that God spoke through to his people to tell them, nay, but the Lord will be thy king. Samuel was there when the people wouldn't take no for an answer but kept begging God for a king like all the other nations. And he was there when God finally gave the, the nation of Israel what they had been asking for for days. Can I just stop here and say that sometimes the worst form of God's judgment is when he gives you what you want? Now this is free, it has nothing to do with the message. But I can't, I can't pass it up because sometimes the most miserable place to be in life is when you got what you wanted but you ended up not wanting what you got. And the, the truth of 1 Samuel chapter 8 is this, if God says no, quit asking. Quit trying to run through a door God has so clearly shut. Samuel was there when God told him that the king was going to come from the tribe of Benjamin and, and it would be the son of a man named 
Kish, the, the king would be named Saul. Samuel was there to meet this goodly young man who was head and shoulders, the Bible says, above anyone else, meaning he was huge in stature, but he was humble in spirit because he even admitted his own unworthiness to sit and eat at the same table as Samuel, considering he was from the smallest of the tribes of Israel, which was Benjamin, and his family was from the least of the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel was there. Take the vial of oil and pour it on Saul's head to give him a kiss of approval and to announce to young Saul that God had anointed him and had appointed him to be the first king of Israel. Samuel was there to watch as the Spirit of God came upon Saul and gave him a new heart, the Bible says, and fitted him to be a leader. Samuel helped mentor Saul. Samuel helped guide Saul. Samuel was a father figure to Saul. There was so much promise and potential in this young Saul. But Samson was also there when chapter 13 happened. And Samuel had to watch a shift take place in Saul's life. You see, Saul had won a few battles and tasted a little bit of success. And unfortunately, like so many leaders who take taste success Saul became enamored with his own kingdom he came he became drunk if you will in his own dynasty he was no more small in his own eyes through a series of events Saul pridefully in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel assumed a responsibility that was only given to the prophet and that was a sacrificing of a burnt offering and a peace offering He got impatient, wouldn't wait on Samuel to show up. And he disobeyed God and rejected the clear word of God. And Samuel that was there to confront him about it, only to hear a prideful response, one of justification and one of excuses. Samuel was there in chapter 13 to give him the conditional prophecy that we talked about on Sunday morning. Where the Lord made it clear to Saul that if he did not repent and get his act together, he would lose his kingdom altogether. Samuel was there when God gave Saul another chance out of grace by ordering him in 1 Samuel 15 to utterly destroy the Amalekites and save none, to take no prisoners. And Samuel was there as Saul only partially obeyed by sparing the king and the best of the livestock. And that's where we learn that we have the same tendency as Saul to hang on to some of those sins. Samuel was there to confront Saul about his sin again. Only to hear denial, blame shifting, minimizing, justifying, and only to see Saul express more sorrow over losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. And Samuel was there to make that final announcement that God had once and for all rejected him as the leader of his people. Do you get an idea of why Samuel was mourning? Do you get an idea of the severity of Samuel's grief? He knew that once he walked away from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he would never see him again. He he would never be able to offer him counsel again. He would never be able to pray over him again, anoint him again, offer a sacrifice on his behalf again. He was there to see great potential, and he was there to see the great 
fall. And here's where we find Samuel now at the end of chapter 15. He was mourning over what could have been. No doubt he laid awake at night thinking about what could have been if Saul would have just obeyed. What could have been if Saul would have just stayed humble? What could have been if Saul would have just repented? And Samuel's not the only one that knows what it feels like to have to watch sin destroy and devastate something or somebody that had so much potential. You've had to watch it, and I've had to watch it. As a youth pastor for 10 years, I've had to watch young people who had so much potential to do some big things for God, yet got caught up in the wrong crowd, developed a bad attitude, stopped listening to authority, and eventually were devastated by sin. I saw it coming. I couldn't stop it. It was predictable. But when it happened, I still mourned. Perhaps you've seen a new Christian who had so much promise, who who was so on fire for God, didn't miss a church service, was getting plugged into ministry, would worship with enthusiasm and give with generosity of their time and their talent and their treasure, yet at some point got offended and just couldn't seem to get over it, so they stopped coming to church, they gave up on God and went back to a life of sin. And we mourn over that. We've seen a marriage that was full of promise, Putting God first, walking with God together, serving God together, worshiping God together. They had kids and they were raising God together. Then they got out of the habit of seeking God daily and coming to church regularly. And a few years into marriage, they started neglecting some good habits that were in place at the very beginning when they fell in love. They made themselves vulnerable at that point to Satan's temptations and and their marriage was devoured by the devil. Sad. Seen pastors, pastors with so much promise, wonderful preachers, they love people, gifted leaders, yet success perhaps went to their head and eventually pride went to their heart and it destroyed those pastors as they no longer were vigilant and sober minded and, and humble. The devil got in and sin devastated that pastor's life and that pastor's family and that pastor's ministry. And these are all things that cause us to grieve, to mourn. By the way, those who really love people, like Samuel loved Saul, will find no joy when sin devastates somebody's life. And if you can sit through those examples, not so hypothetical, those are all real and I've seen them, and you are potentially unfazed by hearing those. All you can do is look at your watch, all you can do is think about what you're going to do after this. Listen to me, you don't love people. Because somebody who loves people will grieve over the sin that devastates their life, will grieve over the sin that devastates their career, will grieve over the sin that devastates their testimony. They won't go on Facebook and like a status of somebody that's messed up. They won't enter into sideline gossip about somebody else's sin. They won't have some kind of sick, twisted, inward joy when another church member falls into sin. Are you hearing me tonight? 
we all can place ourselves into the shoes of Samuel and know very well how he was feeling. But we also know what it's like to be devastated by sin ourselves. Talking about to look in the mirror. And the very person you're most disappointed in is not somebody else. It's the person staring back at you. Perhaps you know what it's like at the beginning of a year to make new commitments to God that I will stay fervent and I will stay disciplined and I will stay regular in my spiritual disciplines of reading my Bible and praying and fasting and giving and attending church. But three months in, you fall short of that goal again. You look in the mirror and say, I'm gonna, I'll never get it. You know what it's like, perhaps, to lose your temper, to hurt people with your words, to make a fool out of yourself and threaten the very relationships you cherish the most. You feel about that tall when you do that. You know what it feels like to be caught in the devastation of an addiction where you want it and you do it, then you hate it. Then you want it, then you do it, then you hate it, and then you want it, do it, and hate it. And it's one vicious cycle that is devastating your life, yet you're stuck in it and you feel like you'll never get out. You know what it's like to perhaps finally land a good job, a good career opportunity, yet take some of those bad habits with you into this new job and you mess up again and you hear your boss say you're fired and it's devastating to look in the mirror at yourself because you know you just ruined a good opportunity given to you by God. You know what it's like to be perhaps under the stranglehold of covetousness and, and greed and discontent, a place where you where what you have never seems to be enough, where your job is never good enough and your house is never big enough and your, your car is never nice enough and your clothes are never new enough so you keep spending money that you don't have and keep digging your hole of debt deeper and deeper and deeper to where perhaps you finally have to declare bankruptcy and lose your kingdom altogether. Know what it's like to fall into secret sin. Perhaps to get exposed and to see the grief in your spouse's eyes, the grief in your children's eyes, the grief in your parents' eyes, and to feel like you'll never escape what you did. And when this happens to us, when we're defeated by sin, it's easy, isn't it, to get stuck in the land of what could have been. What could have been if I didn't do that? What could have been if I didn't go there? What could have been if I didn't marry them? If I didn't meet that person? If I didn't agree to that deal? If I would have just ignored their advice? Oh, what could have been? That's where Samuel was. And so God just asked him a very simple question. Actually, it was a very loaded question. In chapter 16 and verse 1, he said, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? God is making a statement to Samuel through this question. He is simply saying this, Samuel, what's done is done. I've made my decision. 
The consequences are in place. It is what it is. Now stop mourning and move on. Did you know that it's possible to mourn over your sin too long? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Mourning is a key ingredient to godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And in fact, I struggle to accept anyone's sorrow as godly sorrow who shows no sign of mourning. Yet God is clearly telling us here that though mourning over our sin is essential, we don't need to stay there forever. Oh, it's good to be humbled by our sin. We can't skip that step in the process. But there is nothing humble about sitting around in our own self-pity day after day after day. No, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And there's a huge difference because self-pity is a subtle form of pride where you think of nobody but yourself and what you lost and what you messed up and what you can't fix, and what you can't recover from. Go something like this. Well, I just can never seem to keep my commitments to God. I try and I fail, I try and I fail, and I would ask you, how long wilt thou mourn? I can't believe I screamed at my spouse again. I can't believe I lost my temper and scared my kids again. I'm such a terrible parent. How long wilt thou mourn? I'll never be trusted again. If I had just said no, if I would have just thought about it a little bit longer, if I would have just done the right thing, I wouldn't be here right now. How long wilt thou mourn? Brother Tyler, look at me. I'm a mess. I I told God I would quit this a thousand times, and yet here I am again. It's making me broke. It's destroying my marriage. It's ruining my testimony. Why should I even go on? And I would ask you, how long wilt thou mourn? Just move on. Okay, but you're telling me to move on from what could have been. But what in the world am I supposed to move on to? Look at verse 1. After he asked him, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Seeing I've rejected thee from reigning over Israel, look what he was supposed to move on to. Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. What's God telling Samuel? He's saying, I know Saul had a lot of potential. And I know that he had a lot of promise. And I know you believed in him. You mentored him. You were a father figure to him. And I know he let you down. And you're sad because he sinned and he lost his kingdom. But Samuel, hear me. That doesn't mean I'm done. I've still got a plan. So get up. Take those sackcloths off and put on your good garments. Wipe those ashes off of your head. Eat you a good lunch. Fill your horn with oil. I've got a new king. I've got a new plan. I've got a great future in store. Though the king failed, the kingdom will still go on. Because God is bigger than one man's sin. And God was telling him this. I know you're mourning over what could have been. But it's time to move on to what I want to do right now. And this is where we get the full idea of the passage. 
the overarching truth of our text. Stop mourning what could have been and move on to what God wants right now. If you want to defeat sin, you don't just need to utterly destroy it. You don't just need to show godly sorrow that leads to repentance. When you've been forgiven, when your sin's under the blood, when you've made things right with God and man, hear me, it's time to fill your horn with oil. It's time to take off the clothes of mourning. And it's time to move on in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God provides you. Here's the good news of 1 Samuel 15. And it's been built up inside of me like a volcano. Because 15 verse, chapter 15 up to this point just has nothing positive in it whatsoever. And so I've been preaching about sin and, and it comes off so righteously indignant. And even up to the point in this message, it's very intense. But now I've got good news, finally. That God still has something for you to do. Olivia sang it, God's not through with you because if you're not dead, God's not done. Hear me, you might have the story of Saul right now, but God wants to include you in the story of David. You might have a past that haunts you, but God has a future that awaits you. Get up and move on. Well, man, I'm struggling to believe that that's actually a possibility. Okay, then open up your Bible for once and study all the failures in between these two covers. Ask Abraham, who was impatient. Read about that struggle in Genesis 16. God sure seemed to use him still. Ask Noah, who was drunk. Jacob, who was a liar, and Moses, who was a murderer, and Ruth, who was an idolater, and Rahab, who was, a, who was a prostitute, and Gideon, who was a scaredy cat, and Samson, who was a womanizer, and David, who was an adulterer, and Solomon, who was greedy, and Peter, who was a loudmouth, and Thomas, who was a doubter, and Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed, and Paul, who was a persecutor, and John Mark, who was a quitter. Why don't you turn over to Luke 15 and ask the prodigal son, who was a rebel, was rolling around with the pigs, devastated by sin, dwelling in the land of what could have been for weeks, for months, maybe even for years, but eventually made his way back to his father in, 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 in repentance. Ask him if God gives second chances. Ask him if God forgives. Ask him if God shows grace. Ask him if God gives a better future. He'll tell you absolutely 100%. In fact, he'll elaborate, and the prodigal son will tell you that God doesn't just give you a better future God runs to you and God kisses you and God gives you a robe on your back and a ring on your finger and he celebrates the fact that you've come home and so I'm trying to tell you can you tell I'm excited about it that listen to me if, if you have fallen and been defeated by sin join the sinners club Amen. but fill your horn and pick yourself up after you've repented after you've made things right. Don't try to rush that process. Don't try to get to 1 Samuel 16 before you've gone through the full steps of 1 Samuel 15. We don't sweep sin under the rug. There are consequences to, that come. You reap what you sow. That's a universal law. You'll never, ever escape. But chapter 16 will come. 
because God is bigger than your sin. And God's kingdom doesn't cease because you mess up. God doesn't give up on you. Aren't you grateful it's never too late to do the right thing? Do you hear me? It's never too late to do the right thing. Let me ask you three questions and we'll go home. Is there something you need to move on past? Maybe you kept an A-gag in your life. Maybe you're holding on to some livestock. And it's devastated you. Maybe it's nearly devastated your testimony. Or your finances. Or your job. Or your marriage, or your children, or your health. Or your ministry. Hey, consequences are real. But don't mourn too long. How do I know if I'm mourning too long? When you're mourning over what could have been keeps you from moving on to what God wants you to do right now, you're mourning too long. When you're stuck in the land of what could have been and you're paralyzed by your own choices, it's time to get up. Question number two. Is there someone in your life that you need to let move on? Is there anybody in your life that you just can't seem to forgive for what they've done? It, it, it's as though you just keep reminding them in subtle ways and won't let them move on from a decision they made. And every one of your arguments or conflicts, you choose what they've done as ammo and you use it against them. Maybe you're motivated by the fact that you want them to feel sorry for as long as possible. If you were to let them move on, you'd be letting them off the hook too quickly. While there's a time for trust building and reconciliation to fully take place, let us not be guilty of getting in the way of anybody's recovery from sin simply because we can't get over it ourselves. Question number three. Is there someone you know needs help to move on? They've kept some agags, some livestock. You're close to them enough to know that they think God's done with them. You know that they think they have no hope of a better future because you see them clothed in sackcloth, covered in ashes, and stuck in the land of what could have been. You know them well enough to see a fake smile. You know them well enough to detect hypocrisy in their worship. And you can almost see the hopelessness in their eyes. Why don't you be an agent of God's grace in their life? And why don't you help them move on from what could have been to what God wants in their life right now? Hey, instead of just sitting in the corner and saying a a token prayer for them, instead of sitting on the other side of the auditorium with a judgmental, condemning type spirit towards their sin and their failure, why don't you get up out of your pride 
and walk to somebody who's messed up. Someone that you've got credibility with, someone you care about, someone you're close to. And why don't you care enough about them to help them move on? Because God has a future for them too. Quit hanging it over their head.